What's up? Welcome to Sweathead. I've got Courtney Ackerman, a researcher and author who focuses on positive psychology. She released a book in 2018 called My Pocket Positivity. She has two books in the pipeline. One's about bliss and one's about gratitude. We'll probably see them in 2019. Welcome, Courtney. Good time of year to be talking about the topic we're going to be talking about. Am I right? Yes. Very good time of year. I think uh, January is probably a time when most people start thinking about being positive, even if they haven't for a long time. Hmm. So we're going to be talking about positive psychology, and a lot of what Courtney does is evidence-based authorship, and and also Courtney consults on how to construct research and and surveys, so we'll probably talk about that towards the end as well. Uh, But this is a little bit about intuition, but largely about evidence. Just so that people can understand how you arrived at this point, Courtney, how did you get into this field and how would you describe your take on the field? Yeah, the, uh, the story of how I got into this, um, I think it's probably one that will sound familiar to a lot of uh, people in their 20s. Student loan debt is how I got into this. <laughs> uh, I was looking for some sort of side gigs to make some extra money. Um, I have a background in positive psychology, so I was looking at ways to apply that. I found some outlets and, and started writing some articles on positive psychology, and, and then boom, it just sort of picked up. As far as the survey research goes, that's something that I really focused on Um, in grad school. It was something that has always just really fascinated me. So um, when I started kind of finding my own way, I thought, I'm going to do some survey work. And so I just kind of started offering my services on surveys um, to researchers that needed help. And that's kind of taken off as well. I've Mm -hmm. been very fortunate. And uh, is there a particular ethos that brings all your work together in in a way that, you know, how an artist might have an artist statement and they're trying to bring to life certain work for a period of time that stays true to that artist statement? What is there something about positive psychology that is maybe uniquely something you're trying to explore? Um, You know, I'm not really sure. I think I sort of have a lot of far ranging interests and so far, I think I'm the only thing that really <laughs> tends to bring them all together. Uh, maybe I'll find sort of that common thread one day. Um, but for right now, I'm, now I'm just kind of following the paths that interest me, even if they're sort of in all different directions. Mm-hmm. For what it's worth, I think one of the, the threads that I found myself returning to is trying to help people who think for a living think themselves not into knots and <laughs> to understand themselves again without that being some kind of weird knot that or like a heavy knot as well that weighs them down and and right. I, I came across you through researching the power of writing because that's something that you've written about and I think there's more and more science mm-hmm. coming out about the power of well art and writing as, as therapy before we get into that though, for someone who is unfamiliar with the idea of positive psychology what is it so in a nutshell positive psychology is sort of a, a response to where psychology has been for the last century or so, Um, especially since about the 1950s and 60s, it's really focused on pathology, on abnormal psychology, on ways that things can go wrong. And positive psychology aims to bring a balance to that. It's all about what can go right. Um, It's about thriving. It's about flourishing. It's about people who are living their best lives um, and what we can learn from that and how we can apply that to take the rest of us from, you know, average doing pretty good to doing great. And so it's, it's interesting though, because for decades, some of us might've grown up in a world where 
mental health issues meant that you were broken as opposed to there are other schools of thought which might suggest that for some mental health issues and definitely not the most complex ones that Mm -hmm. uh you know melancholy for example maybe a way to look at it is that it's a wake-up call that you're not listening to yourself properly and staying true to yourself whatever these words mean is that kind of thinking connected to positive psychology i think so um i think there's definitely um a focus in positive psychology on uh, kind of do-it-yourselfing your your own mental health. Um, that's not to say that you know people who are struggling with a mental illness shouldn't get that treated. Uh, I think sometimes that can get a little glossed over in positive psychology. You know, there's a lot of people that are like, "Just be happy," mm-hmm. <laughs> and well, that'd be great if we could all just be happy. I think. Positive psychology definitely offers you ways to kind of engineer your own mental health, um, provided that it's not, you know, one of the real big problems that you probably need to get professional help for. Yeah. Could you try to talk me through some of the genres of positive psychology? Because for someone who might be a little bit dark and who does ruminate and think and has built a career around that, so it's, it's sort of it's come in handy to a degree, <laughs> I'm sure some elements of positive psychology, for example, Pinterest posts and even phrases to me like best version of myself. In one company I worked at, people would leave that on walls in workshop rooms to annoy me because I was like, oh, you know, but I, I know they're talking to you. I would understand it and it would be a useful understanding. But some of these mm-hmm. phrases and ideas just get thrown around like candy confetti and it's hard, hard <laughs> to really understand them. What are some of the, like the subgenres or the types of positive psychology, some of which might even get in the way of someone appreciating the power of it? Hmm. That's kind of a, a broad question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> trying to think about how to answer that. Let's start, let's, start uh, with, let's start with that first one of the person who just glosses over everything. And it's kind of this robotic, maybe even forced optimism. I'm happy. I'm happy. Mm. And it, seem, it yeah. seems like there's like <laughs> d- denial and a complete disinterest in any raw emotion in that genre of positive psychology there's a sort of subset and a lot of the other researchers sort of call it pollyanna positive psychology right it's like they want everyone to be the pollyanna where everything's positive all the time and everything's great and nothing ever goes wrong and we can ignore all the negative things in life um and while there is sort of a fringe that that are like that in positive psychology um and in life and those are often just the most annoying people to be around I think that most of positive psychology realizes that that's not a healthy or achievable way to kind of encourage people to be. And uh, you mentioned sort of, you know, being a little dark and ruminating. And um, honestly, I, I think I fit into that mold a little bit as well. So I think it surprises some people that I'm into positive psychology. But one of my favorite things, one of my favorite studies uh, from positive psych is that if you try to force people who are naturally sort of pessimistic to be optimistic, they actually perform worse. It's sort of a, it's an indication that we all have our ways of of doing things, of getting things done, of of coping, of coaching ourselves through difficult moments. It's certainly not great to be super pessimistic all the time, but there is a sort of realistic pessimism that is helpful. And some people just sort of operate better when they're thinking about the worst things, or at least some of the some of the ways things can go wrong. Mm-hmm. I think personally for me, if I try to force optimism, uh, it's sort of like I'm, I'm just ignoring or, or in denial, as I think you mentioned earlier, just sort of in denial about all the ways that you know, things could turn out 
bad or not quite how I want them to. And, and I like to feel prepared. First time I came across the phrase forced optimism was during a particular political reign of a particular president a while, a while ago, but this century. And <laughs> the way that it was explained on YouTube, I think it was by the RSA who in the UK, which which made amazing videos. I don't, I've tried to find this video a few times. I don't know if it's still there, if they changed the name when they took it down. But it described forced, forced optimism as a, a way for some cultures to say you're either with us or you're against us. You're either evil or you're good and we're good. And if you even question anything, any criticism, any suggestion that there's a different way of doing something, you're in the other camp. How do you understand mm. forced optimism? Uh, that's an interesting take on it. I haven't really thought about that before, but... It makes sense. I think forced optimism is, I think it's sort of a, oh, sometimes at least a way to push problems onto um, other people. It's sort of like, you know, if something, if something terrible happens to you, if you're, if your dog dies or whatever, forced optimism would be someone saying, well, you know what, get over it. You're going to have a new dog someday and you're going to be so happy. And, you know, you need to grieve. There are bad parts of life that we just need to go through. And, and it's those bad parts that often make us more grateful for the good parts. Mm -hmm. uh, so forced optimism, I just see it as, as unhealthy and unhelpful. It's, it's funny. That reminds me of, of two things. One is that a friend did training to learn how to help people who are in you know, re real distress, mental health mm -hmm. distress. And one of the tips that, th that this person was taught was to do the exact opposite of what that example was, which was to actually say, oh, how, you know, how does, that, how does that feel? That must feel really bad. Like, how, how do you feel about it? And to even maybe even label it in a way where someone who's into false optimism would almost forbid themselves for using such a word. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think it's really important work that your friend was learning about. And that's learning how to be in touch with our feelings and being okay with feeling however we feel. And then another one that maybe you've come across or even received is if you if you if you've gone up and down over life for whatever reason, someone might say, "Well, I've never felt like that," as if to say that therefore nobody else could feel like that. Is that forced optimism, <laughs> forced optimism, or is it just total denial and lack of empathy? <laughs> yeah, I'd say that's just a lack of empathy, <laughs> a little good old fashioned ignorance. <laughs> what is some of the the science in this space that's exciting you most right now? hard to say. Um, the stuff on gratitude that's coming out is, uh, I guess it's not really big and new. It's sort of been a, a big thread of research in positive psychology for a couple decades. Um, but it, that really grabs my attention. The findings on gratitude are, are really impressive. I, I don't really believe in any sort of miracle cure or one thing you can do that will make your life 100% better. Um, but if I did, I would probably say that practicing gratitude is is one of them mm -hmm. um, gratitude just has it has such power over um the way that we think in, in what way how does it work when we kind of when we practice gratitude when we take a few minutes um whether we want to journal it or just say it out loud or even just kind of keep it in our heads if we just take a few minutes to stop and think about what we have to be grateful for. And even in your darkest moments, you can always come up with something to be grateful for. It might be something tiny, but you can always come up with something. And when we do that on a regular basis, we're, we're basically rewiring our brain to look for the good things in our life instead of the bad. The bad will always be there, 
And it's always something that, you know, will pop up and that we'll have to deal with, but we don't need to dwell on it as much as some of us do. And so practicing gratitude is a good way to basically just get your brain in the habit of being more grateful and more positive. And so that relies on the concept of neuroplasticity, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Our brain is very, very impressive. Yeah. So again, uh, like I read about this stuff, but not everybody listening to this will have read about this stuff. And I know you exist at a way deeper level than I do. How does the brain change? So the way that the brain changes, it's not so much, you know, like the actual physical structure of the brain changing. Um, it's connections. I mean, there are trillions of, of different connections in our brain between um, all of the little, you know, brain cells, the neurons. And uh, we have these set pathways in our brain that we have developed over years and years and years. Um, and so we're used to this way of thinking. Uh, we're used to doing things this way you know, we have this habit, that's all in the brain, that's all pathways that we've created. And that every time we kind of go through those motions, we uphold them. And what's really impressive about the brain is that you really can be the own architect uh, of your brain. You can uh, do things like practicing gratitude or mindfulness um, or meditating, and you can actually rewire your brain and you can change the way that you think. And I think that's sort of mind-blowing. I guess that's a pun. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's, it's, a good, it's a good pun. I'm down with puns. How Can you think of any specific research and any anecdotes from such research that, that often pop up in the world of gratitude science? Hmm, I can't really think of any off the top of my head. I know that there have been some studies out there on neuroscience and gratitude and just nothing's floating to the top right now. Sorry about that. Okay. What specific kinds of exercises could someone do? Is it just a matter of pausing and thinking about things they're grateful for? Is, is there even more benefit in writing is it once a day, many times a day? Is there any evidence around the way mm -hmm. to actually practice it? Definitely. Um, and one of the first uh, big kind of mainstream game-changing studies in positive psychology was about a gratitude practice. It's called Count Your Blessings and Not Your Burdens. Um, and so these researchers uh, divided some students into three groups. They had one group uh, write about things that happened to them over the last week, just sort of neutral things, just whatever happened to them. They had another group write about all the bad things that had happened to them. And then they had a third group write about uh, all the good things that had happened to them. So of course, encouraging them to uh, feel grateful for the good things that had happened to them. And what they found was that even after the study had ended and they weren't writing in the, in the weekly journal anymore, the group that practiced gratitude still had higher well-being. Um, they still were more grateful and they actually got sick even less. So uh, that shows us that there is some lasting power to it, um, but it definitely needs to be done regularly. I believe in the study, uh, they did it on a weekly basis, but they were supposed to be thinking about it each and every day. And I think that's where the most evidence is. It's, it's a daily practice. It's something that you should try to incorporate into your regular routine to really see the benefits. Mm. It's funny because there's something so amazing about the research and the body of research coming out. But there, are, I think there is something in the Pollyanna-ish way that a lot of the, it, because it's an industry as well, that the industry of positive psychology promotes itself that I, I think is a barrier for a lot of people who would most benefit from it. It's, it, it can feel too saccharine, too sugary. <laughs> you know, which yeah, is a real, absolutely. Which is a real shame. 
It is. Um, it is a shame. And I think I'm one of those people that um, sort of got drawn into positive psychology almost on accident. Uh, it's probably not something I would have reached out for if I had run into this sort of um, pop positive psychology material before kind of diving headfirst into the research. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of potential there. And I, I don't think positive psychology always advertises itself in the best way. Yeah. One last question on gratitude. Do you practice or have you read much about meta meditation? Um, a bit, but I'm not super familiar with meditation. I'm sure there's, there are people listening who, who throw this into whatever meditation practice they have. I'm a little bit out of my own little, of my own meditation practice, but I, I know it's available to me when I need it. But meta meditation, from what I understand, is where you, 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 you visualize people that you're fond of or even animals that you're fond of and you express mm-hmm. forgiveness and gratitude for having them in your life. And that's just a way that people can practice kind of anywhere without even having to write stuff down. It's worth exploring yeah. as well. Sounds like a great exercise. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, what about bliss? What is bliss? Bliss is one of those things that you just sort of know. <laughs> you just sort of know what it is. I don't know if that I have a real uh, scientific definition for it, but bliss is sort of where happiness and contentment and calm meet. Um, that's how I think of it. It's a state of mind that's not not necessarily joyful, right? It's not exuberant, and it's not just completely calm and content sort of an otherworldly feeling. It's like you've tapped into something greater than yourself. Mm-hmm. That's how I think of it anyway. Can you recall a recent time where you felt bliss? Yep. A few nights ago, I took a bath and it was cold outside and it was warm and I just sank into it and had a, had that moment of, uh, of gratitude for what I had and for just bliss. It was so wonderful. It's so cold here right now. <laughs> and so, so that bath brought together the triad of happiness, calm, and calmness and contentment. That's, that's a wonderful thing. Yeah. And, and as far as people who think for a living, things like baths and walking through nature and talking with people, and they actually turn on alpha waves in the brain, right? And they mm-hmm. al- allow the brain to find new connections. And then the brain can return from those new connections, possibly with a surprising answer to a question that's been on the person's mind. Is this correct? Uh, absolutely. I think that's correct. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know if you're sort of edging into it or not, but ha- have you heard about Kaplan's attention restoration theory? Uh, I would love to hear about that. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a theory. It's a lot. Um, it's very similar to what you just said. It's that uh, nature is a really important factor for humans. Uh, and the more that we've gotten away from it, the worse we're faring, really. And it, that's sort of especially true for children. Um, there's a lot of positive, uh, positive effects, a lot of benefits from spending time in nature. And one of them is, is just that. If, even if you're not necessarily focusing on a problem, I think a lot of people find that when they go for a walk and just sort of look around and enjoy the scenery, um, they might come back from their walk and, hey, they have a, an idea about how to solve that problem. I think it sort of comes up naturally. I have heard of research, I think it could have been from Chile, that looked at mental health and moving through nature with other people seemed to have a disproportionate benefit on people's mental health. I get nervous about a lot of these topics. I don't, I don't know about you because I think that I think I heard of that through Johan Hari. Uh, and I just get nervous that I'm going to either quote the wrong person or someone's <laughs> going to say, oh, yeah, that research was debunked. It was just, it was, you know what? I just did, they just did that research on 10 university students somewhere. Have you come across unusual and surprising and captivating research that within a year or two was no longer true? 
I don't think that I have come across anything like that in the last few years. Uh, one of the big ones in positive psych where that has happened. Um, I, I don't know if you've heard about uh, the broaden and build theory of positive psychology. That assume, theory assume is, not. I'm sorry, what was that? Oh, assume not. Oh, yes. Yeah. So uh, broaden and build is about how negative experiences and emotions like fear and anger uh, have their place and they have an evolutionary advantage. But so do things like joy and happiness and excitement and play and all of these real positive emotions and experiences. Uh, and their purpose is to broaden our horizons and build up our resources, uh, whether those resources are skills um, or social support or whatever. So that's the theory of uh, the broaden and build theory. And that was uh, widely cited. Everyone was very excited about it. Um, it was good research. But after a few years, <laughs> people started noticing that, hey, maybe the uh, valence of the emotions or the intensity of it has more to do with whether it's, you know, broadening and building your horizons or sort of narrowing and, and focusing your attention. Um, and so really what they found is that those high energy, high intensity emotions like fear or, you know, absolute joy, those are the ones that sort of narrow your attention and the less the less intense ones are the ones that allow you to broaden your perspective and build up your resources. And so it was a little bit of a blow, I think, to a lot of people in positive psych. And it's certainly not a not a bad finding. It's not uh, everything you've learned is wrong. You know, it's mm -hmm. just huh, okay. It's a little bit different than we thought. I think this connects to that. But you've written a bit about the authentic self, and in particular, the theory of positive disintegration. I'd mm -hmm. love to talk about those two things and I know that they connect. From from what I hear and read, the idea of the self is slightly controversial. Like, is there a self? <laughs> Are there many selves? Who gets to define the self? Are we just all making this stuff up? Uh, where did consciousness come from? Do are our thoughts even ours? Where you know, where do the thoughts come from? So what's your understanding of the phrase the authentic self? You know, I'm a thinker and and I can frequently think in circles and sort of spiral down and get uh, get way too deep into um, introspection. So for me, I try to keep the authentic self, that idea, a little higher level. Uh, to me, being your authentic self is just being true to, to your own emotions and your own thoughts and your own feelings. Even if they're uncomfortable, even if you'd rather not have them, you really just have to embrace all of it. It's just about embracing who you are because, that, I mean, you can't really change a lot of who you are. You can kind of guide yourself to, to think happier thoughts or you can practice gratitude to sort of look on the positive side more often. But there is a core authentic you that you can't change and you might as well just embrace it. Okay. And is the idea of a core authentic self that one can't change is that science? That, uh, that depends. <laughs> depends on who you ask. I think that a lot of positive psychologists have sort of shied away from that. I think psychology in general has sort of left that to philosophers rather than diving in themselves. So I don't know. Um, I don't know that science can really tell us about what it really means to, to have an authentic inner core self. Um, but there's certainly a lot of philosophies out there that that mention it. Yeah, and it's funny because I, I think 
philosophy has updated science and then science has updated philosophy over time. And, and sometimes there are like these long eras where one dominates the other and then there's an emergence of something that completely flips what generations of people might have thought were normal. Um, mm-hmm. you, you mentioned staying true to yourself. That again is one of those phrases where when I was young, I'd be like, oh, what does that even mean? But as you mature and you start to see simple words in deep ways like the word like the word word or the word writing or self-expression mm-hmm. th- those things mean something quite specific to me now so when you say stay true to yourself and in your example i think or in your what you were talking about was if you have emotions or something's going on and you're not really you feel like you shouldn't be acting that way maybe you're angry maybe you actually feel violent so let's say that you get into a car accident it wasn't your fault the person's aggressive to you and you feel angry and violent about it. What does a phrase like stay true to yourself mean in that kind of situation? In that situation, I think staying true to yourself is uh, the main piece of that is just uh, admitting to yourself what you're feeling. You know, being true to yourself doesn't necessarily mean you have to act on anything that you're feeling or thinking. It's just about uh, admitting it to yourself. It's about uh, noticing that, hey, wow, I I feel really angry and I'd kind of like to hurt this person and just sort of embracing that as a thought that you're having. You don't need to act on it and you don't need to necessarily believe it. I mean, even in another five minutes, you might cool down and not believe it, but just embracing it as something that that you're thinking. Mm -hmm. It's, I guess it's, to me, it's just sort of uh, dealing with reality. It's just, it's just a fact. It's just what it is. But I think that there's a lot of power in embracing your, your thoughts and feelings, even if they're negative, because I think that's how you learn that you don't necessarily need to act on them. And when you say negative feelings, is that something that is defined by science or is that a cultural definition? Like what are negative feelings? Um, I think in general, most cultures sort of agree on negative feelings. Of course, there are going to be some differences um, across cultures, especially Eastern and Western. There's some differences, but negative emotions would be things like, like you mentioned, like anger, aggression, fear, jealousy, guilt, um, all those things that we tend not to like to feel. I'm always curious about people who work in this kind of space and who talk about the self and trying to actually understand how they understand themselves. Because you know this, some people write about this stuff to avoid exploring themselves. (laughs) How do you understand your authentic self? I think the way that I understand myself really is at least partially through writing. And part of it is through just introspection. I've definitely learned that I'm an introvert (laughs) and I like time alone and that time alone I can use to get in touch with, you know, that core inner me, sort of see how she's doing, see if she's happy with the way things are going, you know, things that I can't do when I'm surrounded by people. I don't know if that's a great answer or not, but... And do you find that spending time with yourself, well, specifically writing, that keeps you tethered to who you are? Do you you feel that that self has changed over time? That what has changed over time? Sorry. So your act of writing is a way that you try to stay tethered to yourself, Mm. your sense of self. Have you Mm -hmm. found a different self emerging over time in your writing? I think so. Yeah. I don't think it's necessarily a totally different me. It's not a totally different person. I think it's more of a natural process of learning more about yourself, 
learning what you're capable of and sort of drilling down to those core those core values and those core beliefs. Um, and that's something that, that writing, journaling is just incredibly helpful in doing. Mm-hmm. So no, I, you know, it's not a, it's not a brand new Courtney. It's the same Courtney as I was 10 years ago, but it's a more mature and more well-informed Courtney about herself. Can you give me some specific ideas of what your values are? What do you find yourself repeatedly writing about? I write about some pretty diverse topics, but I think the thing that I come back to probably most often, and this won't surprise you given on uh, what we've discussed so far, uh, is feelings. Because, you know, 10 years ago, Courtney didn't, didn't totally understand that it's okay to feel however you feel. 10 years ago, Courtney didn't accept and embrace the feelings that she felt. And uh, I think that's something that a lot of people a lot of people feel maybe it's especially an American thing as well. Um, and I think especially girls too sort of have this feeling that, uh, or this idea that they need to keep some of their negative feelings to themselves, that they shouldn't be feeling them, uh, that they need to have a, a happy face. They need to put on a, a positive, uh, you know, persona all the time. And then on the flip side, I think that boys are sort of encouraged not to show the the good emotions, uh, like love and, and connection with others. And they're more allowed to to sort of voice the negative ones, like, like aggression. You know, boys will be boys. They're just fighting it out. So I find myself returning to that topic a lot. Mm. Returning to emotions and shoulds, trying to catch myself in uh, thinking about what I should do, what I need to do, what I ought to do, and trying to catch myself before I I go too deep into that should path. Mm. Well, that was going to be my next question. So so for someone who researches and writes and publishes in this space and who also identifies as an introvert and who identifies as having a history of deep introspection that sometimes goes too far, what techniques do you apply to yourself that you've learned through your research to to stop or minimize? Because it's not always about turning something off and stopping it. It's it's about just, oh, I caught myself a little bit quicker this time. And the Mm. next time, you know what, it went a bit further and that's cool. Maybe I can write about it one day. But what techniques do you use that you find successful? Uh, redirection is really the the most impactful technique, I think, for, for me personally. And so that is, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about, oh, darn, something bad happened to me today. And I have that tendency to think about, oh, yeah, and this bad thing happened to me yesterday, too. And, and oh, last week, this terrible thing happened. And then suddenly, I'm just thinking about all the bad things that have happened. It t- it's hard, and it takes practice. But I've learned to sort of catch myself to realize when I'm doing that and redirect it. So I'll think about, yeah, man, that that thing that happened really did suck. But, you know, what happened right after it? Or sometimes I'll think, how could it have been worse? It could have been way worse than it was. You know, it wasn't that bad. Um, so kind of just redirecting, redirecting, not necessarily the thought, but the way that I'm thinking it, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. totally. I mean, in meditation, they talk about labeling thoughts and treating them as visitors that are just passing through. So that's a kind of redirection. It's a little bit different to what you're saying. And, mm-hmm. um, I loved the part of Viktor Frankl's man's search for meaning, where he talks about the power of humor to get new perspective on something that's not very funny. And mm that it's a very powerful and positive tool because it, it, it redirects, it can redirect something that is painful. Hence the world of stand-up comedy for a lot of stand-up <laughs> comedians. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I love Victor Frankl, and, and that's probably one of the reasons there, because I, I tend to have a bit of a dark sense of humor, and that makes me feel like that's okay. It's yeah. okay to be a little dark. <laughs> I, I only read that recently, and I was so happy to see that, because I, I, look, I think a lot of Australians are quite sarcastic and dark, and I'm definitely sarcastic, <laughs> sarcastic and dark. I would get that on my school report cards. But, <laughs> but I, over the years, to me, a lot of that sarcasm and the banter of Australian men and, and as Australian women as well, it's quite, it can be quite aggressive and competitive banter. I now understand that as many acts of creativity, one upmanship and one downmanship, and it can be mean and it can destroy people. But if you can somehow find a balance in it, I'm like, Oh God, you know, the, the way that we all put each other down and compete verbally, that's these little mini acts of creativity. And I, I haven't seen as much of that in my time in America. Yeah, that, absolutely. Um, I think there's pockets of it. I think uh, my friends and I are probably one of those pockets. <laughs> You're probably right that it's uh, more common in Australia. Um, but I love the way that you think about that. It's an opportunity to be creative, really. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about the theory of positive disintegration. What's that all about? So uh, the theory of positive disintegration, it's, it's all about uh, personal growth. Um, so the, the researcher Dabrowski, uh, he grew up during World War One, and he was really influenced by what he saw, uh, in World War One. And I think he sort of wondered about how some people, you know, maybe came back from war, uh, broken and, um, non-functional and others went through terrible times, um, but seemed to sort of get new life, uh, you know, gain new, new life from their bad experience and turn it into a, a positive. So I think it's, it's definitely related to post-traumatic growth, although positive disintegration, you don't necessarily need to have this, you know, terrible traumatic thing happen to you to sort of get all the way through your, your personal development. I don't know if that answered your question or not. Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. <laughs> um, you know what I want to do? Because I, I do want to hear a little bit about how you approach research and surveys. But I, I'd love to just run you through a few scenarios. And it's not necessarily to ask for advice. You know, people need to do their own research and be respons <laughs> take responsibility for their own lives and actions. But I, I just want to run you through a few scenarios of people that I know and people to whom I've, I've spoken recently. So, okay. and, and, and hear what you might suggest from a, an evidence-based point of view. So sure. this first one's very common. Uh, and this is this is not me, although I totally relate to it, and you might as <laughs> well. A, a friend is writing a book. The friend has published a book before. The friend is close to completing the book and now worries about whether anyone will read it, whether the voice is good enough, and whether the book should even finish. What could you suggest from the research that you've done to help this person work through the situation? That's a tough situation, and I can definitely identify with that. Uh, I think all of us can when we're creating something. You know, we have those moments of, will anyone care? And it's totally natural to have those moments, but I um, think maybe a little bit of that authentic self stuff can play in here. I, I might suggest just trying to get sort of more in touch with that core authentic self to find out whether you're writing this book for the right reasons. Because if you're writing it for the right reasons, then it doesn't matter whether it's got the perfect voice or whether it's, you know, completely free of errors and typos or, or whether anyone even wants to read it. 
if it's if you're doing it for the right reasons then then, then none of that really matters and and it sort of fades away mm-hmm. yeah it's it's funny and i think this is uh the way that i try to apply what you're referring to as the authentic self when i get into that mood i will just take out a blank piece of paper and write maybe to myself or in some bizarre voice. I try not even to judge. I just let it come out and I I draw, I make it more dramatic as I go. I try to remind myself on why I'm even doing the project and why I'm angry or or some kind of powerful emotion, like what, why I'm fired up to do the project. And I, then I I linger on that thought and I I write and I write and I write and I might fill up like one page with really small writing for 20 minutes. And I find that really does remind me of what I'm doing. And at the same time, I have to remind myself that, Hey, I, I'm doing this because I'm a writer and I have to do this. I don't have a choice because you know I've, you know, I've definitely had a decade of not writing as much as I should and that was not very healthy for my brain. And so I've, mm-hmm. I've seen that and I've seen myself healthier <laughs> with the writing. And then what I love to do is like read a little bit of fiction, but you know, maybe a short story just to get mm-hmm. really interesting language and different themes and voices popping up. Uh, and then I write. I found that really, really useful. Do you have any yeah. practical techniques like that? Not really off the top of my head, but I really like what you were talking about. It's sort of like exercising your your demons almost. <laughs> it's um, it's bringing all of that to the surface. Uh, so any any technique that you find, and I think there's a lot of ways you can use writing to do that. Um, any technique you find that sort of brings your your inner core, what's really going on, it, thoughts and feelings to the surface. Uh, I think that'll help. Okay. Love it. Love it. Let me give you scenario number two, the phrase imposter syndrome. I think it's an interesting phrase. It probably helps some people identify some of the things that they're feeling, but it can also, I think be a, it can hold people in, like it can hold people captive. That idea. Is there anything from the research that you've either done or found or written about that could help someone who thinks for a living and who has a big presentation coming up and they're like, I don't know if I should, do I even deserve to be in the room? Do I deserve my ideas being heard? I can identify with that for sure. Um, The thing that has helped me uh, personally from the research is (laughs) you've heard fake it till you make it. I'm sure everyone has. Um, If you're feeling a little self you know, um, self-conscious about something, you're not feeling real confident about it, fake it, act like you are. And then eventually you will make it. Um, and that phrase, that's, that's sort of, uh, uh, method, uh, they found does not work for people with imposter syndrome. Um, and that's because we don't want to fake it till we make it because when we make it, we feel like we're still faking it anyway. Uh, so I think the best thing you can do to try to try to address that those feelings of being a fraud is not to fake it till you make it, but to fake it till you feel it. So it's, it's just changing the, it's just framing it differently. You're not trying to, um, to fake anything really as a, as an end goal, right? Hmm. You're faking to get to the, it's a means to an end. I guess. Um, and I think that helps people with imposter syndrome a lot more than telling them to just fake it till they make it and then keep faking it. Okay. That's interesting. And I, and I guess the idea of fake it till you feel it is not necessarily about 
feelings and emotions in the way that we were describing before. There's probably a slightly different definition of the word feel there, but I, I got to tell you in recent years, I've understood that my love language is words. So the book, The Five Love Languages, is quite an mm -hmm. interesting, interesting book. I'm not sure if you've read it. Uh, yeah. and, and so when I'm feeling a little bit anxious about things, I remind myself, and I, my, young, my young version of me would find this really hippie and weird, but if I turn up to do a talk and there's you know, 100 strangers there, to me it's, uh, it's an act of love. And, and I tell people that I'm not here to dominate you with thinking. My aim isn't to feel better than you, even though obviously psychology would suggest that every, everything we do in public has some kind of status-seeking need uh, mm -hmm. in it. But I'm, I'm like, just take it as an act of love. Take what you need. And I came through, I arrived at some of that thinking through just some amateur experiences with yoga over the years, uh, which was quite different to growing up around rap and uh, martial arts and and, and, <laughs> and, the, and, the, and honestly the repressed masculinity of, of uh, Australia in the 1980s and 1990s. Mm -hmm. Let me give you one last scenario and I want to make this about couples. Often, often relationships dip into their own kind of melancholy uh, and sometimes one person wants to make the effort and the other doesn't. Is there anything from the research that you found that could help a person in a relationship help the relationship or even help a couple that is just in a, the relationship just, the relationship's just in a funk. I, that's a tough question because it just totally depends on uh, what that funk is. Um, I feel like there are a lot of ways that you could describe being in a funk in a relationship. Uh, and some of it might, some of those ways might mean that, you know, the relationship is um, not healthy anymore or it's even toxic. Some of it could mean, you know, a couple just needs to spend more time together and, and sort of try novel things and get the blood pumping. And some of it might mean they need a serious uh, sit down, you know, with a counselor talking through their feelings. I think the first step in any of those scenarios is to be honest with yourself about what you want and to be honest with your partner, hmm. because that's the basis of, of fixing the problem, how, however it gets solved. Um, so any exercise that can help you, help you sort of figure out where your head's at uh, and help you understand what you're, what you're feeling better and anything that helps you communicate that to your partner is gonna be the way to go. Yeah. As, as you were talking, I was thinking about novel experiences because I haven't, I haven't read research on this in a long time, but I guess date nights for some long-term couples is a, it's almost like feeling in the dark for that novel experience. And sometimes people half step a date night. So it's just a bit robotic and they're talking about the same stuff and then they don't want to do it again. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and also I think gratitude comes up a little bit as well in, as far as relationships, working out how to express thanks towards the other person have you come across anything to do with gratitude specifically in relationships oh yeah definitely um practicing gratitude for your you know spouse or significant other and also expressing that gratitude to them is one of the best ways to keep that connection solid it's actually a little trick as well that um you know a marriage counselor might suggest to a couple that uh, are sort of feeling on the brink or, or you know, dealing with resentment or, or anger towards one another, uh, the counselor might say, all right, for the next week, just try as hard as you can, find anything to be grateful uh, for your spouse for. 
anything that makes you happy, anything that they do for you, if they take out the trash, you know, be grateful mm-hmm. and thank them for taking out the trash and do your best to really mean it because um, our thoughts often follow our actions. We don't necessarily think of it happening that way, but it does. Um, we don't like that cognitive dissonance, you know, that sort of, uh, wait, I'm doing something nice for this person, but I don't like them. So mm. we try to fix that. And uh, one of the ways that that usually gets fixed is, hey, we find that we are feeling a little bit more closer, more connected to this person. Mm. Um, so it's sort of a relationship hack, I guess. Um, practicing gratitude can really bring you closer yeah. for for both of your sakes. Yeah, from what I've read, I think being specific about what you're thanking the person for is really important as well because it's easy just to say thanks for blah, blah, as opposed to, you know, I really appreciated the way that you took out the, <laughs> the garbage. Um, <laughs> it's, it can, it's more meaningful. And then also diff, different people have different needs around gratitude as well. I'm sure people who mm-hmm. use words and need words require gratitude a lot more, whereas some people in some cultures, it's more about the act of service or helping helping the family or community that is the way that that person shows thanks absolutely okay last couple of questions so we do have a lot of people listening i'm assuming there's a lot there are people listening <laughs> see how optimistic i am uh there, there are people listening who who conduct their own research who digest other people's research uh, and, and also just trying to work out how to do research often under pressure and you consult people who do research what is that as a job and how do you do it so what i generally do is uh consult with people who um usually they they understand research and they know how to do it but they may not be uh, as familiar with the little niche that i'm in which is survey research um so generally that's what i do i i help um professional researchers i help professors um, and I often help, you know, grad students and, and uh, doctoral students because it, there's a sort of uh, special little area that uh, not a lot of people dive deep into uh, as far as surveys go. And I'm sure that's true for a lot of other uh, types of research as well. This is just sort of the one that I'm the most familiar with. Okay. Um, and what, what are some of the pitfalls around survey research construction? Oh, boy. There are a lot of them. Uh, One of my favorites is what's called double-barreled questions. Uh, And that's where you're actually asking the respondent two things or even, you know, three things instead of just one. It's sort of, uh, it's like uh, asking them, do you like ice cream and hot dogs? Um, What if they like ice cream and not hot dogs? Mm. What if they like hot dogs and not ice cream? So there's no way for them to actually answer that question honestly. Uh, and the data that you're going to collect is is honestly not not really any good. What, what's another one? And what I'm nervous about, while while the way I interview in a podcast is not a survey, I'm nervous that you're just going to describe my general approach to interviewing people. <laughs> <laughs> um, like, like, I mean, there's so much tech, technology right now, and it's so easy to set up an online survey. So there are probably more people doing some. Are you talking about online surveys or using survey in a broader way? Uh, all kinds of surveys. Right. Generally, so it's online, but some, yeah, all some piece of technology that, right? Generally, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. You know, I, interviews and, and paper and pencil surveys are are also commonly things that I help with too. Okay, uh, just a couple more pitfalls. Uh, a lot of people just sort of try to spit any question that they want an answer to out there, 
and uh, respondent fatigue is a real thing and it's a thing that will bite you um, if you're not careful. You really need to keep your surveys as short as possible. Um, one of the pitfalls is definitely people that just, their survey's too long. There's too much in there. So one of the best ways to avoid that is to, to really take a look at every question and think, what is this helping me to answer? And if it's just something that's nice to know, then you should probably cut it from your survey. Do you find that uh, too, many, too many people have an answer that they're trying to get to through a survey and to prove? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's something that a lot of us are, are guilty of, uh, whether we totally realize it or not. Um, we often have a, a little agenda. We think it's going to turn out this way, and, and that can absolutely affect the way that we create questions. Um, and that's one of the things that I think is uh, uh, helpful about the service that I provide because I'm a neutral third party. Um, and I mean this in the best way. I don't care what your results are. <laughs> which means that I'm going to try to create the the questions in the most objective, non-biased, non, you know, trying to get a certain response way hmm. possible. That makes sense. You're interested in the fidelity of the survey, but disinterested in the results. Yes. I mean, unless they want my help in analyzing the results, which I can absolutely do as well. And, and then I'll care about your results. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> as far as creating the, the survey, yeah, I don't I don't care whether it's, you know, uh, going to um, answer the question the way that you want it to be answered. I care about you getting the best possible data. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for that. It's always interesting to hear how people in different kinds of industries and roles do tasks that some of us try to do uh, and often under severe time pressure <laughs> as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, so your first book was called, is called My Pocket Positivity. That's out there now. Do you have names for the next two books on Bliss and Gratitude? Yes. The second one is called Five Minute Bliss. Uh, it's over 200 exercises that you can do in roughly five minutes or less to uh, get a little more bliss in your life. Um, that's coming out in June. And the third one I'm working on right now, and that's also in the same My Pocket series. It's going to be My Pocket Gratitude. So big focus on gratitude lately. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, where can people find you on the internet? Where are you most active? I probably most active on the positive psychology program website. Uh, that's where I do at least a weekly article um, where I talk about a lot of this kinds of, of this kind of stuff. Um, if you're interested in uh, the book, then, you know, Amazon, Target, Walmart, Barnes and Noble, all those places have it. What a show off. Oh my gosh. No, that's good. That's good. That's good. And good self-esteem there, Courtney. You know, it's amazing. Congratulations. That's awesome. Oh, thank you. You're available in so many places. I was being sarcastic. That it's was Aussie. very exciting. That was Aussie banter at its most unnecessary. Well, thank you so much for joining me on Swearhead today. Uh, best wishes with the, the next two books and may there be many, many more. Courtney Ackerman. Thank, thank you. you. Peace.